I was recently in Las Vegas covering the show called CinemaCon, which is a trade show for movie theater owners and the studios that make movies for them. And a lot of the talk this year was about this mysterious unreleased video-on-demand service called Screening Room, which would essentially put movies in your home the same day they come out in theaters. And all the studio heads were kind of like making little subtweet mentions about it from time to time. And then the entire thing ended with James Cameron taking the stage during Fox's presentation, just saying, you know, I hate screening room. My films are made to be shown in the theater above all else. That's the ultimate vision. Uh, And then he went on to announce that he was going to be making four Avatar sequels instead of three. And I just couldn't help but think, do you really expect us to see all of those in the theater? Hello, everybody, and welcome to What's Tech, a podcast from TheVerge.com. I am your humble host, Christopher Thomas Plant. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, my friend, senior reporter of TheVerge.com, Brian Bishop. How are you doing? Hello, Mr. Plant. I'm doing well. How are you doing today? I am doing okay. You, uh, I can see you. We Usually, we don't get to record with video. You are wearing a hoodie. I am. You live in California. What 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 makes you do this to yourself? Well, the hoodie is gray and it is mm. cold in the house. And mm. since we're recording a podcast, I did not want to turn on the heater because that would make noise and that would be bad for podcasting. You know what's great for cod- podcasting? You said podcasting, by the way. Oh man, this is a hell of a, a hell of an intro. But you know what? We're so likable and like relatable. These are like issues that everybody has. Anyway, today we're talking about video on demand, a thing that. Maybe not everybody has, but most people have and might not even know they have. In fact, they might not even know the acronym VOD, despite the industry desperately wanting everyone to know it. So let's start there. What is video on demand and how might people who already have it in their lives know it? Okay, um, so I'm going to blow your mind here a little bit. So broadly mm-hmm. speaking, video demand is you know watching moving pictures or video um, mm-hmm. whenever you decide you want to. So on demand. Uh, basically, so that can be I mean, such, that checks out, right? Exactly. That's different than obviously stuff that you would be watching that's being broadcast live at a scheduled time, which could be a football game or tuning in to watch The Walking Dead, you know, every Sunday night, essentially. And, you know, the term VOD actually stretches across a bunch of different you know, delivery mechanisms and paradigms at this point. VOD could be Netflix. It could be direct TV on demand. It could be iTunes rentals. It could be on demand on Time Warner Cable or just watching something on a plane. Um, so, you know, that all fits under the big umbrella of VOD. So people, if they have a cable box or a satellite provider, they probably have it. It's just under a menu where they, you know, order something to watch right away. Okay. We're going back in time already. We're 1980, I don't know, nine, mm-hmm. or like 1991. A young Chris Plant is running around his neighbor's friend's house uh, in his underwear, pro wrestling is about to start. We are ordering a pay-per-view for WrestleMania number I don't know what. Is this experience that I'm about to have video on demand? Not technically, because it doesn't hold back to that original definition. Um, you know, watching something whenever you want to. Because, you know, pay-per-view was, you know, was then for, for young Chris Plant and now for UFC bouts and more boxing all about live events. You know, HBO boxing was the big pay-per-view thing I remember when I was growing up. So people would get together, uh, they'd have a party, and they'd all pay 50 bucks, whatever the fee was, to watch something live as it was happening. Um, you know, and that's the model that's still working today. For it to be video on demand, you'd have to... I guess have magical powers and wake up and say, you know, I want to see Manny Pacquiao fight right now live and then turn it on. And if you could do that, <laughs> that would be technically you know, video on demand, but it would also be magic. So, got um, it. Or like when I watched like uh, the one time I ever rented like 
a pay-per-view movie. Those were just like playing on loop and it gave me access to that loop while video on demand would be like, hey, you can start the movie at any time you want. Yeah, that loop is actually an early version of video on demand where they would, you know, they would just basically have extra bandwidth channels. So they would just put stuff on like 15 minute cycles. So every 15 minutes you could tune in to watch a movie. Um, and that that's considered a version of video on demand. Um, okay, let, let's go down that rabbit hole. Okay. Because maybe these will overlap. I, I know that there were very early tests of uh, traditional video on demand in England mm-hmm. in 1994. Right. Tell me a little bit about these. Um, that was the first, that first big test was part of what was called the Cambridge Digital Interactive Television Trial. Um, which is a really Mm, sweet name. Yeah. Um, Basically, it started with 10 homes, part of the the Cambridge Cable Network, and they streamed video from a media server to special set-top boxes. Uh, And that was kind of about it. And originally, uh, that streamed video from a media server to special set-top boxes. And over the years, that kind of went up to about 250 homes and schools. Um, So technologically, they knew that this could happen, but there wasn't a lot of content at the time. So by 96 or so, they kind of like, you know, called it quits. Um, you know, and that kind of actually set an early template for how this whole space works, where it's a lot of times we can do like really, really cool stuff technology wise, but we can't get the content providers to really get on board to make it happen, which is something that's going on with, you know, everything from the adoption of, you know, iTunes store, you know, and, you know, 10 years ago to you know, virtual reality. Apple. Yeah. Or Apple's mythical yeah. TV service. So basically, it's, oh, you know, yeah. technologically, we can do a lot of stuff, but content providers don't want to give up the content or the old business models. Were these kind of early services that uh, were happening in the 90s, they were running over the internet or were they running over TV signals or how did it work? Right. The first commercial one was also in the UK. It was 98, um, a company called uh, Kingston Communications. And that was the, they had a box that basically had broadcast television and VOD in a single box that was going over DSL. So that was, you know, over the internet, Um, you know, and that was kind of like the first time that those things had been integrated in that kind of format. Um, you know, and they kind of had some early success, you know, three years later, I think they had about 15,000 subscribers and other companies, um, started doing that same thing. And by about 2005, the UK cable providers, they also started getting into that market, but the first ones were over the internet. Okay. The UK is great. I mean, like big fan, not necessarily of all the food, but candy is good. Love me some flake, but you know what else I love? The United States of America, my home, sweet home. Tell me about video on demand in this great, beautiful country of ours. I've been living in Texas for a year now, and look what I've become. I'm a monster. It's kind of magical. It's kind of magical. I enjoy it. Um, So obviously in the U.S. we're big winners. So right away we were like, okay, let's go on board. No, um, HBO started testing out video on demand in around 2001. It was in that same time frame. Um, Everybody started playing with it. You would see cable channels start to do different on-demand services. You know, often they had the rights to the movies that they'd be showing. You know, Stars was in 2004. Uh, Comcast, I want to say, started up their service in 2004 as well. And by 2005, it started diversifying a little bit. You know, that was when Verizon first announced VCast, which was going to be, you know, some sort of video on demand over, you know, a cell phone signal. But there was like really, really thin content offerings. And all of this is happening against this really interesting backdrop of TV getting upended because that's when DVRs are popping up. Um, it's when video demand is happening and everybody's kind of freaking out because they don't know how technology is going to change the way things have been working, you know, for the last 50 years. Okay. So the reason I wanted to have you on this show and not any of those other clowns that I work with, 
And I say that because I know they don't listen. <laughs> or maybe they do. In which case, I'm sorry I called you a clown. Kind of. Wait, were there other episodes that you called me a clown on? No, I assure you that has definitely not happened, except for in episode 32, described as, is Brian Bishop a clown? <laughs> and the answer was, definitely. Um, I wanted to have you on because you just spent uh, <laughs> an unhealthy amount of time in Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> which is really any amount of time beyond two days. Uh, and I can say that now because last time I talked poorly of Las Vegas on the show, I got a lot of negative feedback. Don't worry, I actually enjoy Las Vegas. It's perfectly lovely. I just would choose not to spend time on the Strip for more than two days. But you did that. You spent a lot of time there mm-hmm. uh, for uh, an event uh, about the film industry. Right, CinemaCon. And at this, yeah, CinemaCon. And at this event, they uh, talked a little bit about video on demand and the influence that it's had on the film industry. So what I would like from you is to uh, kind of catch us up on that relationship and then give us a look at the, uh, let's say, anxieties that were expressed uh, at CinemaCon. Uh, anxieties and the... the- reassurances from every studio in the world um video on demand is kind of interesting on you know for tv shows right it's been this interesting thing where people talk about how it's helped shows i remember breaking bad took off uh, like in the third season or so um or fourth season because people could watch it on on demand services or stuff like netflix um, so they could catch up to the broadcast stuff and that helped but movies have been a slightly different thing and that comes down to how the way the movie business has evolved over the decades and it's all about something called Windows which is not an operating system but I'm going to try to make this sound interesting um, okay. basically back in the day you know, movies would be in theaters for a certain amount of time and after they were there for like six months they would go to home video uh, and after that they would go to you know, other avenues they'd go to you know, pay TV and then like a long time after that they'd show up on broadcast TV cut up and they'd be terrible But VOD kind of like changed that because it opened up this opportunity for a lot of different windows. You know, there's subscription VOD, which is, you know, Netflix or Amazon Prime. There's transactional VOD, which is running a movie on iTunes or Google Play. And all of these things have their own little windows windows of exclusivity. Um, The idea is to make sure that they're all, you know, the studio is getting the most that they can out of each individual window. But what's happened as the video market has kind of like tanked because you can watch things on home or on Netflix or on VOD, um, they've gotten all really scared, right? Because suddenly you're like, oh, great. If we wait a year for this thing to come out to this other market, it won't do as well because it's been too long. So they've been like shrinking the theatrical window. And you hear a lot of talk, a lot of talk at CinemaCon about the theatrical window. So basically theater owners don't like it when you shrink the theatrical window because that's a less amount of time that they can have Star Wars only in theaters and, you know, have people come in to see it there and buy popcorn and do all that kind of crazy stuff. Wait, can we pause right here? Because yeah. I have a question about this. This is a part I don't understand because I would imagine uh, as a theater owner, you only need so much time with a movie before it's like, eh, it's just not making that much cash for us at this point. But is that is that incorrect? Or is that like, yeah, sure, maybe for the brand new theaters, but what about the theaters that like show slightly older stuff or dollar theaters? Is that the issue? Um, it's a couple different things. Uh, one of it is that they they basically want to have, they just want to make sure the theater is locked down just, just in case, right? Because some of you may, may come and do, you know, be there for one week and then be gone. 
but if a movie has legs, you know, like Star Wars or like, you know, Avatar back in the day and it's around forever, that's all popcorn that they want to sell. Those are all tickets that they want to sell. And also there's a whole element of basically, you know, keeping the genie in the bottle because right now as it stands, the theatrical experience, seeing a movie there is still kind of like the holy grail of movies, right? Um, you go there, you pay a premium price. You can only see it there at first. It's a big event. Everybody around the country or the world is kind of participating at the same time. And that's special. And to kind of get people to come to theaters, theater owners are throwing all kinds of new stuff like laser projectors and 40X and stuff that is good and terrible to basically make the movie theaters feel like those special things. But once you can watch a movie at home, the same day it shows up in a theater, there's an element of magic and kind of mystique that their worry is going to just disappear. Because if I can go and watch, let's say if I could have watched Pixels at home, I wouldn't have watched it anyway. But if I wanted to see Pixels, it would have been easier to see Pixels at home than go out to a theater to see it. And this is a old fear, right? I mean, this was a fear that they had with VHS and beta and everything. Yeah. Okay. So there is a basically solution for the thing you're describing, from what I understand. And it's called screening room. Yeah, it's it's funny. People have tried to play with this from time to time, and theater owners have freaked out. There's this movie called Tower Heist that Brett Ratner directed back in the day that was going to go to VOD like three weeks after release, and everybody freaked out and said no, and they kind of like, you know, called halt on that. Screening room is the newest incarnation of that kind of idea. It's this initiative that's led by Sean Parker of you know Napster fame. That basically people buy a $150 box and then for $50 a pop, they rent a first run movie the same day it comes out in theaters. And, um, you know, they can watch it with friends. They can watch it whoever they want. And, um, you know, basically what was interesting about it is that it came out with a lot of unexpected support from people like J.J. Abrams and Steven Spielberg and Peter Jackson, people that are very much cinephiles or people that value the theatrical experience, but seem to be saying, hey, this is the way forward. We should pay attention. Now, this project, it's, it doesn't exist yet, right? It's just being talked about. It's kind of like coming up in press releases and people are talking to people about it. And, um, you know, once that news happened, theater owners and some filmmakers like James Cameron freaked out and said, no, it's the theatrical experience or nothing. So CinemaCon, which is an event where studios present to theater owners is a theater owner trade show basically became all about them saying, don't worry, technology is like, you know, that's fine, but we're going to keep you guys in first position. Don't worry, it's going to be okay. Literally every single studio that had a presentation had a moment where they kind of gave a shout out to theater owners about how they weren't going to let technology ruin everything. The theater is king, which of course they're going to say that, right? That's like the show. That's the audience of the show. Um, and, and people loved it, of course. But what's weird about something like Screening Room is that, you know, like you said, technological innovations have come and gone for the over you know decades, right? Theater owners are trying to make things special in response to that. Cinemascope came about because of people worried about TV was going to eat into movie theaters. But eventually, like these things exist, people pirate stuff. Um, eventually, somebody's going to have a, find a way to let you see first run movies in your home the week and you know, the time they come out in the theaters. It's just like inevitable at a certain point. And what's weird about it is like there's a self perpetuating cycle at this point where movie attendance is dropping. So to kind of make up for that, the industry is jacking up ticket prices. They're trying to get more people to come with fancier experiences, you know, with, you know, super crazy widescreen screens and, you know, fancy chairs and all this kind of stuff, which makes things more expensive. And, and that price makes it less, you know, decrease, uh, decreases the incentive of people to go to the movie theaters in the first place and make something like Screening Room more attractive. If you have two kids, right, and you want to go see Finding Dory, it's going to cost you like, you know, 120 bucks to go to the theater. Paying 50 bucks to see it at something like screening at your house is a no-brainer. I just wonder how many industries can not learn from the music industry. Like, like you look back on the history of the music industry and like, 
what was like in the 30s or 40s or whatever, it it made so much money off sheet music and it kind of like had to evolve to get relationships with radio and selling more records and touring. And when it stopped evolving, when it like ceased to figure it out in the 90s is when pirating happened. And then it just got, it basically had to be brought low before it could understand that at that point it was too late and they might as well get what they can get and what's what's weird to me about the film industry as you're describing it is it feels like yeah this it is inevitable like somebody will find a way for this to happen whether they are the ones to do it or a different party is is the group to do it so why would you not at this point try to get on that ship and appease your customers. I mean, that's what Netflix did for home video. So it's just very strange. Well, and it's not like they've 100%, right? And it's not like they haven't had this battle before 10 years ago. I mean, when iTunes first came out, they wanted to have, you know, TVs and movies available for purchase, right? But nobody wanted to play ball. So like when they launched iTunes TV show purchases, it was literally like ABC and that was it. Yeah. You know, like it was like it had to, you know, drag people kicking and screaming to do anything. And that was right after the wake of the music industry collapse. It wasn't like there was, it was like, a, oh, maybe this will be bad. It's like, you knew. The example was right there. And eventually they figured out a way to do it. Eventually they embraced digital distribution uh, for the home, for TV, and eventually for movies. And so it's there. Um, but this concept of Windows, it's, it's, it's nuts. I mean, is it totally upend the entire paradigm? Yes, it's true. But this paradigm is based upon basically a system that was created around physical limitations, you know, because you had like a print, right? And that just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, and, and you didn't have a screen in your house. Right. Because it was projected right. onto a sheet at your like local, if you lived in a small town, movie house. Like, it's, it, it, it is legit crazy when you think about the origins of a movie theater and its purpose versus like, our capacity to watch whatever we want at home in environments that are often more ideal than a movie theater. Many, most home theaters, I would wager, are more enjoyable than a New York City movie theater. Anyway, I digress. We have two more questions. They're kind of things that we already hit on, but uh, I want to circle back on them. One is how are theaters reacting slash, let, let's hope, evolving in kind of the shadow of video on demand? Right. It's, um, you know, on that screening room front, it's kind of interesting. There's been two different reactions, basically, depending on how big of a theater you are. If you're a major chain, um, you hate anything that compresses that theatrical window and you want it to go away and you're going to fight tooth and nail to preserve your territory. Smaller chains that cover, you know, you mentioned, you know, ones that cover older films or show like, you know, smaller indie movies. Um, they've been cool with this kind of stuff. Day and date releases where something shows up, you know, on some sort of, you know, video service and the theater for small movies is pretty common now. Um, so that's kind of happening already. So, but how theaters are reacting to the rest of it, you know, it's it's interesting. Right now it's this big, it's this big game where nobody really wants to admit what they really think because the blowback is so bad. There were rumors that AMC was actually interested and or on board with Screening Room and had already signed some sort of deal with them. Um, which would be interesting because AMC has new leadership on that has been like crazy forward thinking to a negative degree, right? Like one of the guys was like, you know, yes, we can do like, you know, theaters where for millennials you can text and people freaked out. And he said, no, we're not doing that. But they seem really, really open to trying new things, which is really interesting. Um, but the other theaters seem to be not on board at all. So it's this kind of game of chicken where everyone wants to go and protect the theater. 
while they're looking at this problem and they're seeing the decline in attendance and they're trying to solve it by making theaters fancier and more expensive, which ultimately isn't going to lead anywhere positive, I think. Okay, well, let's go down that road for the final question. Ten years from now, what do these two things look like? What, video on demand first, and then the, uh, I think, uh, maybe more depressing or maybe crazier answer uh, for theaters after that. Right. Um, video on demand, I think, will be simply more comprehensive. And I think we'll, you know, all these kind of over-the-top services that we talk about will exist, you know, and they'll be much more accessible and they'll, you know, exist in a better way. I would not be surprised if, you know, all TV is delivered over the internet. And I think, you know, in that sense, a lot of it will be, a lot of it could be under the umbrella of, you know, video on demand. Um, You know, things like screening room, maybe two years, it may be five years, but by 10 years, some way you'll be able to go and watch first run movies in your home. I could see studios holding some of them back. Like maybe, you know, Marvel is a theater exclusive and that becomes a thing. But broadly speaking, you know, all these lower budget movies, they're already available. That's just going to keep happening more. And, you know, all the movies that aren't $300 million tent poles or $500 million tent poles by 10 years from now, you know, that's just more, it makes more sense for them to be there because at a certain point, a theater needs to maximize their marketing investment which is the other part of it, because they spend a ton of money to guarantee an opening weekend. And if people can watch it in a bunch of different venues right away, too, that's better for them. Can I tell you my crackpot theory? Yeah. If they, This is if everything goes really bad, which I, I don't think this is like how it actually ends. But say movie theaters, all of them really do close down. People lose the desire to go to movie theaters for 90% of movies. Everything's VOD day one. It's the zoos that will win because the zoos this is is so absurd have and the museums have the like really giant imax theaters with the like absurd amount of seating the largest screens uh and they will customize the few movies that do go to theaters will be so heavily customized like maybe even like live interaction uh or something to that effect that you will pay a hundred dollars or more like a theater experience to see these movies live but they will have to be in these sort of spaces almost like real theaters because the rest of the year they have to be used for something else like showing educational imax movies uh or being actual stage theaters but that like that's the weird thing about this kind of reactionary thing that we are seeing from movie theaters is the way they're reacting, that is the end game. Like, that, that's the weird thing, is their lack of confidence speaks to a version of the future that is actually worse for them. Because, like, if they really believe that what it's going to take is to, like, have, you know, a thousand kazoos blaring at you while you watch uh, Spider-Man and, like, actual wind and ice to pelt you... That just feels like it's like it, it's making theaters more expensive and only geared towards these very singular and precious rare experiences rather than the other movies, which you'll just watch. You'll associate with watching on Netflix. Right. Yeah. I don't think that's crazy at all. I mean, at first I thought you meant people would go to zoos more and I thought that was a little crazy. But this the movie theater theory is um, I mean, they'll go to zoos more because they're already be there. So, I mean, big boon for zoos. But zoos big don't, win. Don't zoos make you sad sometimes? Like, you're zoos like the make giraffe, you profoundly sad. The giraffe wants to live. It doesn't want to be stuck behind bars with people taking pictures. Yeah, but sometimes they're like injured giraffes. 
you know, it's like zoos as like health healthcare facilities. Those yeah, are my favorite zoos. That's what SeaWorld said, Chris. Okay. But li- hey, listen, we have we have a local zoo in Austin, and all it has is injured birds. And I go there, and I feel both so sad but so happy. I'm inspired by those birds. Okay. Well, I need to come to Austin to visit the bird <laughs> the bird zoo. Apparently, you just surrendered. Um, You're like, oh, well, okay, I can't for- injured birds. Come on, that's like the Trump card. You can't. You know, I know. You Good can luck. Do that. <laughs> that, that You're like, you win. Card. Okay, fine. Injured cute birds. Okay, you win. Um, but no, no, I think you're totally right about the movie theater theory. I don't think it's crazy at all. I mean, I covered a panel with um, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas a couple years ago, and they said the exact same thing. It's going to be like going to the opera. That theory has been around for a bit. And what's so funny about it is that when they said it, you're like, that's crazy. Like, how does that equate to, you know, a movie with, you know, with, you know, DTS sound does not equate to that. And now you go to CinemaCon and you're seeing all these demos and all this stuff. And I can go to, you know, a theater down the street, you know, that has a laser projector and like these big cushy layback seats. And it costs $20 to go in. And you're like, oh, oh yeah, it's just like a few random innovations away from that. And, you know, it's like I think it's ultimately inevitable for the theaters. And I think they're freaked out because they know it, too. And it almost becomes a question of how can they pivot or how can they maximize things in the meantime right because if you're if you're reacting to the current climate by making your product um fancier and more expensive like you know at some level that you're making it more of an exclusive niche product there's just no way around it yeah i I, i'm realizing that so many what's check episodes end around this tone that i always think like Oh, like being in media, so so precarious. Like, uh, what a what a fragile thing. Technology could totally upend everything. And the more I think about it, it's like no, technology is moving so fast across the board that there are few jobs where you don't have to be almost entirely panicked that everything you have could be taken away from you at any moment. You know what job you don't need to be panicked if you if you have what bird doctor. Oh my gosh. Well, that's how I'm ending it. I'll see you suckers later. I've got a new job. Bird Doctor, MD, coming on video on demand this fall on NBC, starring me and Johnny Stamos. Um, thank you for doing the show today. <laughs> thanks, Chris. It's good tracking. Uh, <laughs> thanks, as always, to our producer, Andrew Marino, who's going to have a blast editing this one. Uh, and thank you to you, our listener, who really really stuck by our side um usually we recommend that you go to itunes and review our 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 stuff after this episode maybe don't unless you're like feeling real good then do uh but we also like to recommend other podcasts that you can check out and go leave a review on them because it does them a solid uh today i'd like to recommend three i've got startup podcast from our friends gimlet they are on their third season, and it's one of my favorite shows. Alice Isn't Dead, which is a, a new show, well, newish, from the people uh, at Night Vale. And Pop Culture Happy Hour, my favorite show from NPR. I, 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 it's one of my favorite shows from NPR. I realize saying it's my favorite audio show from NPR is kind of like being like, oh, it's my favorite show from HBO. Like, there are, there are so many, I can't really choose. What, what is your favorite show from NPR? Oh, I didn't know there'd be homework associated with the podcast. Um, <laughs> you, you got it. Do, do you need me to feed you an answer? Feed me an answer. Okay, This American Life. Um, I'm a big fan of This American Life. I'm a devout listener. I can't talk today either, but I'm a very, very passionate listener of This American Life. 
Interesting. Cool. Yeah, I'd recommend that show too. Anyway, we will talk to y'all later. Bye. Bye. <laughs>